Before we get started, we wanted to let you know that this episode contains graphic medical descriptions of sexual organs and sexual health. If you're listening over speakers or with kids, you might want to listen later. Welcome to Behavioral Grooves. My name is Kurt Nelson. And I'm Tim Houlihan. We are building a community of people interested in positively applying behavioral science to their work and life. We do this by having fun and engaging conversations with a wide variety of people. In this episode, we are continuing our series with Carnegie Mellon researchers and sharing a conversation we recorded with Professor Julie Downs. Julie is an associate professor of psychology in the social and decision sciences department at Carnegie Mellon's Dietrich College and she fits perfectly into the cross-disciplinary culture of that group. Her interests have spanned anthropology, to healthcare, to economics. Our conversation with Julie was energizing and fascinating as we began by discussing something that Kurt and I are completely unfamiliar with, how to make the proper vaginal insertion of a dose of an HIV prevention drug. That said, we were totally engaged by the fact that the drug is extremely low cost, doesn't require refrigeration, and can be kept private in otherwise touchy situations with sexual partners. The implications of that across the world are just amazing. Yeah, tremendous. We also discussed making decisions in an increasingly complex world of what to eat. Fast food is readily available, it's cheap and easy to acquire for a hungry family, and for many working parents, it's the easy thing to do. However, The calorie counters on fast food menus don't seem to have a positive effect on what gets ordered. Julie discusses some of the research on one way that this can be improved. Also, in our grooving session, Tim and I tackle the concept of friction and how that applies to product development and communications. And we talk about insights that we can take from a food ordering app that has a special calorie counter built into it and use those insights in our other work. So sit back and enjoy another episode in our Carnegie Mellon series with Professor Julie Downs. Welcome, Julie Downs, to the Behavioral Grooves podcast. Thanks for having me. This is exciting. This is really exciting for us to be here at Carnegie Mellon. So, so uh, this is this is just really fun. We're going to get started with a speed round. Okay. Okay. Monet or Michelangelo? Michelangelo. Bicycle or unicycle? Oh, bicycle if I'm not going to fall. Up the mountain or down the mountain? Up the mountain. Life without a mobile phone or without a laptop? Laptop. All right. Okay. So I would I would actually dig into the why? the unicycle. Have you not ridden a unicycle lately? Come on, is that not just a normal Carnegie Mellon thing that you know, all you, the professors do? I've uh, I'm more of a I'm more of a bicycle. I've bicycled across the Sahel Desert, which Ooh. is not an easy place to bicycle. Across. Which which desert? The Sahel. It's just north of the Sahara. No, it's just south of the Sahara. So <laughs> it's near in the Africa. Yeah. In Mali. It's in Africa. Mm-hmm. Wow. You bicycled across it. Do they have yeah. roads? I mean, are they you, have roads, okay. but we weren't always on roads. Oh wow! Yeah. There was a portion on sand which was really not just pushing your bicycle across the sand, but sort of lifting it to get it <sighs> over the sand. There were parts that were easier. There were some shorter days and longer days. Okay. Okay. Yeah. That sounds fast. That could be a whole co- we podcast could, we could on do its own. A whole yeah. discussion about that. Absolutely. Um, but let's let's talk a little bit about your research. Yeah. Uh, so let's start with something that you're working on right now. What do you think is, is is really engaging you in terms of some of the findings that you're seeing right now? Well, right now I ha- I've done a lot of stuff over the years on um, sexual behavior and sort of reducing sexual risk. And right now I have a project I'm working with some um, uh, researchers, medical researchers over at University of Pittsburgh, who are developing a new technology for um, preventing HIV. And it builds on, um, there's a drug called, um, the brand name is Truvada, it's called Oral Prep, which is a drug that somebody who's at high risk for HIV can take every day. And it's very, very effective at um, preventing HIV. But it's not, well, it's actually very expensive. Um, It's FDA approved and insurance covers it. Um, But it's, um, a lot of people don't really like to take a pill every day. And you have to start taking it for quite a few weeks before it's built up enough in your system to really offer protection. Okay. And so NIH wanted to develop a new technology technology that people could use on demand. So they're developing this um, film. It's for women, a vaginal film that you insert into the vagina. Um, the, the f- the, it's a film uh, like a Listerine strip. Oh, okay, okay. Not like 
camera film. Right. That'd right. be I'm, really I'm sorry. weird. I, yeah. I, yeah. Yeah. That yeah. wouldn't work at all. Yeah. Okay. So okay. So the strip, this little. Mm-hmm. It's a little okay. square, and you just fold it up and put it in, and it, it basically delivers the drug directly to the side of of infection, the yeah. side of transmission. Yeah. Um, but it's a weird thing to do, right? Like people, these films exist for contraception. They actually don't work particularly well, but they're not very widely used even, um, um, not only because they don't work that well, um, because it's a weird thing to do. And, you know, you, people don't necessarily want to put this in there. You know, you women would have to use her finger to insert it. And it's daily? No. Um, it actually lasts for a week. Oh, a week. Okay. It lasts for a week, um, and um, and you can you know would stand up through multiple sexual exposures. Okay. Um, and it works within 20 minutes of inserting, so it's much better than the couple of weeks that you would need to be taking a pill. Yeah. And the idea is you have someone who's not in a chronic, high risk situation. Um, if you have somebody who, let's say, is married to or has a long-term partner who has HIV, they'll be taking this pill every day. Right. And, that's, and that'll just be part of their daily routine. But if you have somebody who is not in that kind of chronic high-risk situation, but maybe they meet somebody, they don't know this person's status, if they have this film in their purse, and then you know they can just use it and then come back and go home with somebody and have protection. Um, and it's, uh, uh, so what they're developing this, they're still sort of testing the technology, making sure it works, but the results are, are quite promising. It seems to be going very well. But my part is, um, how do you get women to use it? Yes. To use it correctly, to know it's in there, to trust it's in there. And some of our early work, um, we are, uh, we are the behavioral scientists were sort of piggybacking on this clinical trial. So they have people testing this clinically, and then we were allowed to um, survey them um, immediately in the time between inserting this film and waiting 30 minutes for the clinician to come and make sure it's properly adhering to the mucosa where it's supposed to be. So they don't know if they've done it yet, and we talk to them, and they're not very good at knowing if they've done it right. Oh. So that's really you know, That's something we tricky. need to know. Yeah. Um, and so those are the things right now we're just, you said some early work, we're in the early phases of, all right, what's, you know, what is um, predicting whether they can do this correctly? Yeah. We created a little mini um, educational module, video module to explain how it works, why it works, because it turns out they have a lot of misconceptions about what it should be doing based on all the other things they know in the world, like a condom, right. a condom, um, prevents the, you know, is a, is a barrier that prevents the, um, you know, any fluids from getting through. <clears throat> this is a, um, a medicine. And so right. if HIV in particular gets there, the medicine is going to sort of capture and fight HIV on the site. If it had a rip in this film, it wouldn't matter because the medicine is what's sort of forming the barrier. Right. But women get very concerned about if they have nails, are they going to rip this? And they have a lot of beliefs about this getting into the bloodstream and needing to come through the bloodstream the way many, many other medicines work. So because it works so differently from other medicines, a lot of people um, bring all their beliefs about how other medicines work mm. to this very different acting medicine. And that can really undermine their beliefs. And they'll say that. They'll say, oh, like, would it still be working? How do I know? Where does it need to be? You know, th th that'll sort of undermine a lot of their beliefs. So their preconceived ideas are influencing how they're actually not only using it, but then responding to the potential, uh, if it's working or not, and the, the angst that they're feeling as a result right. of that. That's yeah. right, because they well, need to have confidence. If you're going to continue using yes. it, if you don't have confidence in, in it, you'll stop using it. So they need to have confidence in it. Yeah, Lori Santos says, you know, talks about the G.I. Joe fallacy. This knowing is not even half, not even close to half the battle. Like understanding what it's about and what it can do is not even the story. So how are you getting this information? How are, how are you conducting the research? It sounds like, it's not like you'd need to have a pretty in-depth conversation with someone to kind of get to this. It's not, oh, just fill out this survey or jump on the web and answer these 10 questions. That's right. Right now we're talking to people in person. Um, we started off with this clinical sample who, who were, inter they were um, using four separate films that were in development and we were talking to them after each one and they had different sizes or different made of a different polymer base so that we could sort of see how they felt one of the big problems is it sticks it sticks to your finger when you do it and it comes back out <laughs> oh. uh, so that the, the our medical experts are working on that <laughs> side of it thank goodness um, now we're we've um, finished that study and we've moved on to a study where we're trying to recruit people who are at kind of high risk for HIV people who really would use this product um, in their regular lives. And so we're bringing them in and having very in-depth um, conversations. 
one of the limits to the first study was that women were actually inserting this film into their vagina. So we obviously couldn't observe how they did that. Right. As you can imagine. Right, right. So they would be behind a curtain. They would insert it. And then, you know, we would um, uh, survey them, interview them. The clinician would come look, you know, with a speculum to see where the film was. And often it was inserted incorrectly. So we had a big challenge that we want to see exactly what they're getting wrong. We could see in our data what predicted them getting it wrong. And we could identify a bunch of um, kind of reasonable predictors, like them feeling like it's stuck to their finger, um, um, their background, we found, for example, that women who had never used tampons were a lot worse at this. Oh. And probably that relates to just lack of comfort level doing something like this. Is, is age a factor in that as well? Age was not. It was not a predictor. Interesting. Um, we didn't have a huge sample in that. So we, we might not have been able to look at age as a predictor. But, it, but from what we saw, age wasn't a predictor. Race wasn't a predictor. Um, so what we are doing now, we wanted to be able to observe a behavior as close to the behavior of insertion as we could. So, and this actually was a recommendation from our NIH program officer. He said, you know, there's this thing that you might not know about. And it's called, and you can edit this out if this is getting too much for your audience. It's called a fleshlight. Okay. <laughs> F-L-E-S-H. A fleshlight. So okay. it, it, when you get it in the box, so we now have ordered a couple of these and have charged them to our NIH grant okay. um, so, with our with uh, our justification properly there. Um, <laughs> and you get it. It comes in a brown um, discreet packaging. And you open it up, and it's like a black plastic flashlight. looks like a flashlight. And then when you take off the cover at the large end, it's actually a probably silicon um, model of female genitalia. And this is a product that was created for the adult film industry to help the male actors be ready for their scene. I'll put it that way. Okay. And, and, okay. and this is a... Uh, <laughs> to be ready for I just want to know the, the, the person wow. who's approving the NIH um, budget <laughs> yeah. on this, even with your explanation. That just would be an interesting. Yeah, these turn out to be really quite affordable. So if we had (laughs) if we had to put them on another budget, but it's you know this is so so what we have women do we actually have this flashlight and we duct tape it to the bottom of a chair, (laughs) and we have women sit sort of perch on the edge of the chair so it close as we can get kind of physiologically to the location, and then we film them inserting it. Because we couldn't film them, of course, in the yeah. first study inserting to yeah. their own vaginas. That's there's many reasons yes. nobody would yeah. ever well, agree and, to that. And, and they're aware of this very much. Yeah, and yeah. we're sitting so, there with yeah. a uh, with an with an iPhone <laughs> filming them. Yeah. Um, and and so we can see um, what they're what they're doing. What they, where are they trying to put it? Do they understand yeah. physiological you know anatomy well enough to know if you say insert this into your vagina, will it, they insert it inside or will they kind of put it on the out? Well, the is outside? this a really high sensitivity to a specific region? Is this like... Well, so here's the thing. It really gets back to um, people's baseline knowledge. Um, we, in this country, um, do a pretty terrible job of educating people about things that we feel uncomfortable about. And one of those things is um, sexual reproductive organs. So the word vagina, people um, don't know which part of their anatomy is the vagina because it's actually only the inside part. A lot of people think that the entire um, genital region (laughs) is the vagina. And so if they're told to put it in their vagina, they might just put it on the outside of the labia and think that that's, they're not realize that that's not. And that doesn't work. So that just comes down to basic knowledge, basic lack of knowledge, sort of the failure of sex education in our country. And because they don't know, and, and the people giving them this instruction are often highly trained educational professionals or medical professionals who would never occur to them that somebody doesn't know such a basic piece of information. But many people don't. And so as an outcome of this this work, what are you hoping to to then be able to do with it, right? What is the ultimate benefit? Yeah, so we're trying to get to the point, both informing the design of the product and informing um, some educational, um, you know, uh, 
I want to say like paraphernalia, you know, but some right. educational um, accompaniments that will help people. You know, how do you get training with a low budget yeah. training materials? Because um, you don't want to have to bring people in and have them take a class. That's going to, you know, just to insert this thing, that's going to defeat the entire purpose of having this low cost um, implement. Um, but we can train the personnel who are dispensing it and we can create um, video interventions. I'm a big believer in having a nice tested high fidelity video intervention that can just be on people's phones or the web or wherever that people can just watch and it can show them exactly what they need to know. Exactly. Um, because that a lot gets lost in translation when you start having educators, educators teaching educators out in the field. Every little misconception that doesn't get caught can be, you know, uh, well, and as you said, people even understanding their own anatomy and being able to use language that describes that can get lost in multitudes of translations in there. So That's right. yeah. visual. We, we, we heard uh, Toya Najai at, uh, at um, City Block Health in New York uh, talk about dealing with uh, women, especially in poorer neighborhoods. Almost all of them have been traumatized. And so to, to start to have a conversation with them about their health, like the very first barrier was get over how to or need to deal with people who have been trauma, who have you know are trauma victims, and and so I just wonder is uh, are, are there things like shame and uh, lack of familiarity with just terminology? I, I, you know, I would think that you've got to you're having to cross a lot of hurdles mm -hmm. here, right? What what are the biggest hurdles uh, that that you feel like you're needing to cross in this? I think a lot of the biggest hurdle probably has to do with comfort level. One of our biggest predictors in that first study was um, just comfort level with your own body and that this is something a lot of women would say well I want an applicator they're used to having an applicator for tampons and things mm. like that and so they don't really even though it's unnecessary and it would add a big cost component that would make this piece of technology and and the cost level of this piece of technology the difference is so great I think a year's worth of the oral medication is something in the neighborhood of sixty thousand dollars and this film that can last a week um, costs about a dime Oh. So a year is five dollars, oh, wow. um, and obviously that's just production. There'll be other costs involved, and but the the differential is multiple orders of magnitude. If you start adding an applicator, then that's going to um, you know increase the cost considerably, just because it's starting out so very cheap. Right. Um, you imagine something so inexpensive could be distributed to huge huge numbers of popul the population um, it, at it, it, very it, it, low cost. And yeah, globally, it's, where, again, they're happen. never going to be able to, not never, multitudes of the population will never be able to afford the pill that, that you've right. well, I'm thinking about. of developing nations. Yeah. Correct, correct. Yeah. And there are actually a lot of foundations that are trying to take this, this pill into developing nations. But still, you could imagine just uh, you know scaling up so exponentially with something. And one of the big benefits is having this on-demand um, nature, that you have a, a film that doesn't have to be refrigerated. It, you can just have it at room temperature, and wow. it's available. Um, but if you don't feel comfortable using it, or if you're not using it correctly. Um, I think one of our biggest challenges is actually going to be documenting both for peace of mind and for um, efficacy that it's truly, that the medication is where it needs to be. That's one of the things that we, that's a, one of the problems we haven't solved yet. Well, we talked mm. with Sam Tatum, who actually works for Ogilvy, but they were doing this thing about working in a plant and people washing their hands, you know, to the degree to, to do this. And it was what a they, food processing plant, so hand cleanliness was a big deal. And, and, and what they ended up doing, again, their simple thing was a, a, a mark that they got before they washed their hands to actually then would disappear after. The, so it was visual, because otherwise people had different components of, well, I thought I washed fine and different I, things, and I could see this being even you know, exponential in what you're talking about here. And I don't know if there's a simple, there's not a simple mark that well, you could do. Yeah, I mean, that was really relying on social proof. Then everyone could see. And <laughs> this, this is not, well, this, that's there the won't whole There will be any social thing. proof in this. But, but right, but it, it is amazing. It, I think the, what marvels us all the time is the number of simple interventions. Mm -hmm. Like just finding the right twist on, on some of this, which is like, what you're looking for. Like you were saying, there's different polymers and different components, and I'm sure there's probably some texture component that they can feel that are probably going to be different and understanding how to convey that information. So anyway, mm -hmm. we're... We're making postulations here that we don't know well, anything about. Uh, so well, just to, to kind of wrap up this part of the discussion, what's next in, in, in this study? What, what are some of the next things that you're 
uh, advancing and working on? So um, there's sort of a couple of um, directions to go. One is on the development side. Can we develop some sort of maybe an enzyme reaction that would truly, you know, would test? This idea of social proof is interesting because we almost have the flip side of that here, that this is something that women might want to be able to do without their partners knowing. Um, because, of course, asking a partner to use a condom you know, you might think, well, why, you know, if you're bringing somebody home, why wouldn't you just use a condom? Well, that doesn't always go over so well. It doesn't always go over so well with partners. And getting back to the idea of trauma, um, when you have a lack of trust between partners, depending on what the relationship is, a woman bringing up using a condom with some, with a partner that she has a complicated relationship with yeah. can even be dangerous for her mm. um, because it evokes issues of trust, issues mm -hmm. of, um, of lack of trust, issues of accusations or admissions. And so something that can just be done without knowledge of the partner, um, without affecting the partner, uh, it can be a real positive. Yeah. Wow. That is so cool. Um, well, uh, can we look backwards now a little bit? And uh, you've done a lot of, uh, you've worked with people within the department. You've, you've partnered with George and a variety of other people in the department. Uh, is there any other kinds of interdisciplinary work that you've done uh, that, you, that you might want to talk about? Yeah, well, having having brought up you know one of my colleagues, uh, uh, we have a lot of economists in this department. This is a very fun place to work as a psychologist, coming out of a very mainstream traditional psychology department. I had to learn a lot about. I learned a lot about how I saw the world as a psychologist. Things that I never questioned when I first started giving talks to this audience, and people said, you know, sort of raising their hands and asking questions that I'd never heard before, like, oh, I never thought I'd just do it this way. It never occurred to me to think about things any other way. Um, and so that's been really fun. I've been here a very long time at this point. Um, but I've, I've worked with some of my colleagues here. I work a lot with colleagues at the medical school. I work with some colleagues here, economists, um, on um, trying to, a lot of my work really centers around trying to help people make better decisions, help people reduce mm -hmm. their risk um, is really my kind of um, unifying factor. And one of the projects I've worked on with some of the um, some of my colleagues here, the economists, um, is uh, decisions about food and especially pertaining back to policy, um, policies that are put in place trying to help curb the obesity epidemic. Because, of course, the country spends a huge amount of money on the medical downstream consequences of an increasing rate of, um, you know, the obese population. Mm -hmm. And a little bit at a loss of what to do about it. So there have been a lot of policies put into place to try to... Um, change people's eating behavior and exercising behavior because, of course, we know that eating healthier, eating more healthful food and exercising more is going to um, lower obesity rates. But it's really hard to get people to do that. And so policies, one of the big policies, of course, is, you know, identifying calorie, identifying calorie, yeah. you know, labels. On, on and, the menus. On menus. Yeah. Back in the 90s, it was putting it on packaged foods and now it's putting it on menu items. Um, and I think one of the things that's really interesting from my perspective and in these interdisciplinary collaborations is that the policy measures often put less, spend less attention on um, the environment that people are in making these decisions. So we have our citizens living in this environment where fast food and packaged food and junk food is so readily available. And um, we have about a thousand forces you know, impinging on people to get them to consume this food that's terrible for them. It's A, it's cheap. It's super, super right. cheap. Right. Per calorie, it's incredibly cheap. Yeah. There's going to be downstream costs associated with the health, but we know from all our behavioral science literature that that's not affecting people's day-to-day -day, um, decisions. And plus, every any one candy bar you eat or any one you know, Big, um, Mac, Big Mac you eat is not going to cost you a lot of money. It's eating that Big Mac three times a week for 20 years that's going to cost you a lot of money. Same with any one cigarette, right? Yeah. One cigarette is not what kills you. Ten cigarettes a day for 20 years is what kills you. Yeah. And so... Um, we have these forces that people are exposed to constantly that are pushing them down this road. You know, why do we have an increased obesity epidemic in this country? Well, it probably has a lot to do with these this constant availability and, in fact, sort of pushing these very unhealthy foods on people and making it very hard for people to eat healthy. If you have 
um, a, you know, a, a job and you're taking your bus to two separate jobs and you have children and you're trying to feed them and you, you know, how are you going to make them some nice fresh vegetable dish with lean meats and whole grains? It's going to cost you an enormous amount of time and a fair amount of money. And for less money and considerably less time, you can swing through a drive-in on your way home and pick up food for the family. Yeah. And it's, it's very hard to ask the individual person to fight against that just by putting numbers on that, on that menu at KFC. You're gonna, that's going to be enough to get the person. It's just it's too much to ask of the consumer. And, and what did, so putting those numbers out, did you find any? I mean, did that actually, did it work? I'm assuming that, at least in my own opinion, in my N of one, I look at that. <laughs> Which is the most important N, Well, it always is, right? It's, we're always self-centered in, in those components. But I look at that, and sometimes it works, but many times I'm going, no, I just want the Big Mac. I'm going to get the Big Mac regardless of it because that's what I came in here to get. Um, and so I don't know if you found anything with that. So there's been a lot of research, you know, our research, but also other people's research. A lot of people have been looking at this question. And at this point, because it's been a few years since some cities and states and municipalities rolled out these regulations, it's been a very fertile ground for testing. The, the big review um, studies that have been done so far suggest that you're not seeing a huge effect. You're certainly not seeing a nice, beautiful drop in how many calories the average consumer is, is consuming now that uh, wow. um, calorie labels are there. You are seeing pockets of progress, uh, and this part is a little more tentative. There was a, a study that came out recently. It's just one study, but it looked at a sit-down restaurant as okay. opposed to many, many studies have used fast food because it's much easier to get a lot of people coming in and out of, of a fast food place. With a sit-down restaurant, I think it, it looks a little bit more encouraging. There might be some uh, more movement, some okay. more um, uh, reduction. One of the things that you find when you look at the detailed studies is that people who are concerned about their health are very happy to have this information. And many people will cite using that information. They'll go into a restaurant and say, holy cow, I always bought this salad or, or this item because this chicken sandwich, because I thought it was healthier than the um, you know, burger. Right. But now that I see it's actually no healthier, I'll, I'll choose something else or I'll go ahead and get the burger or, or whatever. <laughs> right. So some people will actually appreciate that information. Those tend not to be the people who really need to change their behavior. That's and right. so is it, you know, transparency of information is a good thing. Should we pr offer people the information that they want? You know, I don't think, I, I, I wouldn't argue against that. Um, certainly people in the industry will argue that there's a cost associated and is it worth the cost? And I think that's an open question that, that people can answer. Um, but it certainly doesn't seem to be a huge lever that is going to bring down the obesity levels. We're not seeing that. We are seeing a, a few pockets. So I mentioned that sit-down restaurant. That was another um, someone else's study. But we have a study where we've been a series of studies we've been doing here, looking at where looking at other ways of getting people to lower the the calorie information. And one of the ways that we've looked is in online ordering. And online okay. ordering of of meals is becoming more and more common. Um, of course, you could go um, to a to a restaurant and go to their website and, and order. But even these days, there are aggregators, right? You can go to a website and choose of 50 restaurants and you know figure out what you want. And all this is happening on the web. Mm -hmm. And because it's happening on the web, and because all this information is being collated, you can deliver people more fine-grained information, right? Rather than just say, a Big Mac has 570 calories, you could say, you've chosen a Big Mac and small fries and a Coke. And that has, and that's not a number I have at my, which yep. is the, of course the point. Whatever. Yeah, right. um, you know, that is 1,100 right. calories, let's just say. And then you might see that and think, ooh, 1,100 calories. What if instead of a Coke, I have a water? Oh, now it's only 850. Okay. Oh, that seems better. Maybe instead of fries, I'll have something else. You know, you could imagine. Yeah. And in fact, we have a study where we're looking at that exact thing. And so what people do is they, we give them an online um, platform and, and a menu. And um, and they will um, they they will get a little bit better just from having the calorie information there, but the thing that we're adding to this is in addition to just numbers because those numbers can be really overwhelming. It's a lot of information. How many calories should you eat for lunch? Do you know? No, I, I don't know. <laughs> yeah. Do 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 you know? 
<laughs> do you know how many calories ha- I should eat for Do you know how many calories you should eat? I don't even know how many calories I should eat. Much okay. how many calories, much less how many calories someone else should eat. Damn it. Um, but- <laughs> to learn something today. But it's, but it's knowable. Okay. Right? right. Your doctor right. or or a nutritionist, if you gave them, you said, I'm this tall, I weigh this much, I um, exercise this much, I want to lose weight or I want to just maintain my weight. You're, a nutritionist will tell you, oh, you should eat 650 and you should eat 750, right? right? They can give you those different numbers. So if that's all knowable information, surely we could put that into some sort of um, algorithm and give you that information. So that's what we're playing with. Can you give people a threshold oh. and oh, say, nice. uh, so we just use this traffic light, right? So a green light, you should, let's say you should, uh, right now we just are using sort of standard cutoffs, but right. this is the obvious direction to go. Let's say you should eat no more than 700 calories for a lunch, or you know maybe maybe 850 would be okay, but that's a little high. So then anything up to 700 calories could be a green light. Okay. 700 850 could be a yellow light, and anything above 850 could be a red light. So we've been playing with letting people go onto a platform, and um, what we find is that they'll choose a meal, and they'll see it, it, as they add items to their meal. You know they'll get a sandwich, they'll get some sort of side dish, they'll get a drink, maybe they'll also get a dessert, and that that traffic light will change. And what we see is as people put their meal together, if they still have a green light traffic light, they just, they're done. They say, okay, fine. If it changes to yellow or red, then they start swapping things out. That's Then they say, oh, maybe small fries instead of medium fries. Maybe I shouldn't get a Coke. Yeah. Maybe I should change to a salad instead of this bread or whatever they're choosing. So they do respond very nicely to these thresholds. So now we have to work on making wow. the thresholds a little more meaningful. But it's a much simpler way to get the information. Well, Telling somebody 750, that's just uh, Yeah, and, and I think that goes, I, I've read some research where it's the, where I choose this, um, salad instead of my burger, and then I feel justified that I can eat the brownie for dessert all of a sudden because, wow, I'm eating really healthier here, and so I, I'll make up for it here. And I can see where this now makes that more, it, it really takes us to the next level to say, yeah, but if you eat that brownie, you've now just gone up to over a thousand calories, even with your more healthy main option. And, and this then helps in, in protecting that or... Yeah, and that, and that brings up a question of sort of bracketing. You know, mm-hmm. is the brownie I- included in this meal? And so ah. we keep it under our, you know, in our green light threshold, um, or do we do things in between meals? And so you could imagine, we have such great tools and all this information available that you could imagine a world in which you had a sort of a smart app that was doing all this work for you. You certainly can now get an app and enter food in and it'll count calories. It'll tell you things, but that's a lot of, I've, I've used those in the past. It's a lot of work. It's a lot of work. You know, why do I not continue? I used that for a couple months at a time in my life when I felt like I needed to lose some weight. I lost some weight and then I stopped using it because (laughs) that's exactly the same. I I did the exact same thing and you you got in the routine and you did it. But then it just got, it, it's a yeah. lot every day and you're going, do I got to really enter in that cereal this morning again? Mm-hmm. And yeah, you do because it yeah. adds up over the day and cumulative is the really important part. So Absolutely. Do you think we could talk a little bit about music? Oh, of course you, you can. I, I, I look at Kurt. Uh, of course, the listeners can't see this, but I'm looking at Kurt because I'm always kind of curious as to what kind of glazing eye I'm going to get back. You know, is it, it going to be like, yes, we finally reached that part of the discussion where we get to talk about music? It's never like that, actually. <laughs> no, it's, it is it's, never it's, like it's that. It's actually never like that. Um, but Julie, we, we do like to talk a little bit about music and about your musical interests and things that you listen to. So, do you have a like a regular playlist that you wake up to in the morning that you use on your commute, you know, uh, tell us about your musical interest. Yeah. Well, it's funny right now I have small children, so I consider it an enormous victory that my children will listen to, you know, Beatles, Queen, what, you know, what you Duke like Ellington or something to. like that instead of Elmo. The fact that Elmo <laughs> is not in my regular rotation is triumph. I, you know, and, and I just have to keep my, keep the bar Keep the bar low. We have had Hamilton on kind of constant play for about three years at this point. You and um, me both. Yeah. I, I, my, my kids will actually do Hamilton without the music on because they they know the words, and so we say no, they, and they, they just start. They did this in the car recently. They just do it, and they start singing in the back seat. You got Hamilton, I'll take Burr. I got mm-hmm. you know Lafayette, and mm-hmm. you take That's you know Washington's verse, and they marvelous. go back and forth. Yeah. It's pretty addictive. I mean, we've never, and now we've seen it. I saw it once without them. I saw it once with them. 
um, bringing a four-year-old in to see Hamilton, I was a little risky, but it was no problem. <laughs> yeah. Yeah. Wow. That's, uh, that's amazing. So if you had your druthers, what would just be, let, let's imagine a, a crazy uh, alternative universe where you someone are. took my kids for a weekend. Yeah, yeah exactly. <laughs> that's right. You are home alone and you get to choose what you're listening to. What, what's on your playlist? Yeah, well, it's going to be embarrassingly uncurrent. Um. It's okay. You're in with Tim all the time. Then. Stop that. <laughs> Is it yeah. before 1978? Because then you and Tim can go together. And if it's after 78 to 80, then it's going to be more curvy. Yeah, because yeah. yeah, yeah. I would say my oldies are before 78, and my my cur- my version of current is probably the 80s. Because <laughs> that's when I stopped listening after that. Okay. Um, I mean, you know, the Beatles and and. Um, this sort of just this what I consider just standard stuff. I mean, actually, a lot of a lot of trumpets like Louis Prima and um, Ooh, yeah. Ella Fitzgerald and you know people like that. A lot of that um, is is what gets in there. Yeah. So you could actually bring Louis Prima to your kids through the Jungle Book, the original uh, the original my Jungle Book. Kids actually do like uh, they like trumpets. They sort of go oh, trumpets. So they love Louis Prima. We have a just a couple of of albums that have been sort of on loop over the years, yeah. And then they have watched Jungle Book, and I've told them that's Louis Prima. Oh, that's and cool. They're, and they're like, wow, yeah, it's yeah. yeah. Ah, I love it. <laughs> you gotta, just, you know, you you sneak it in however you can <laughs> no, with just, those kids, just, and just hopefully makes, they take it up. It, yeah. it just makes me giddy. I, you know, the the one last question that we typically ask is: Is there any? One or two things for our listeners that you could say, you know, you've done a lot of work in, you know, obesity, sexual, you know, preventing and teenage sex and all that kind of stuff. But just in average listener, one or two things that you would say, hey, just think about this and it might help you in in having a better life or some better thing. Putting you on the spot here. (laughs) That one or two or three top yeah. things from it's probably pretty easy to sum up like 20 years of research into <laughs> two like tips I yeah. I, you know well well so if we keep it basic i can go back to as an undergraduate yeah because i changed majors a lot i started out as pre-med sort of biochemistry i took some of those classes and they were fine but not my passion i switched to physical anthropology i went to africa i studied with you know I you wrote a bike across, you know, desert, yeah. Wrote a bike across the desert in Africa. I did a lot of those things. And actually, I came back from that wanting to do something more about making people's lives better. And so I kind of came to decision science. Yeah. And one of the first things I learned studying early decision science as an undergraduate was what we call satisficing, which is essentially... When you come to something that's good enough, stop looking. So you go to a restaurant, you open up that menu, you see something that looks good to you, close the menu and talk to the people you're at the restaurant with and have a nice time. And don't try to find the absolute best possible thing that might be on the menu because it doesn't really matter. And you're there to talk to your friends. Yes. Satisficers are happier. Satisficers are happier. I love that. Did you ever, did you meet Maeve Leakey, by the way? Did you just like Mary Leakey? Maeve. Oh, I don't know Maeve no. Leakey. Okay. I did meet Richard Leakey. You, oh. Wow. I have his, I have, he signed his book for me and I had a conversation with Mary Leakey, who's Louis Leakey's wife, yeah. uh, Richard Leakey's uh, mother. Yeah. But I left that world in that, after that. So I don't know anything that's happened it's okay. since then. Yeah. yeah, yeah I had a little okay. job in the museum measuring a tuberosity on primate ischia to compare it to some bone that they had found. So I, in there with my calipers measuring the... You know, Ishia, various primates. It's way beyond the podcast number two. <laughs> that, well, that's all I know. And then I switched. <laughs> that was the end of my journey down that uh, road. Well, Julie, right. thanks so much. Thank, Thank you so you. much. Thank for you your for time. having me. This is very, very fun. Yeah, fun for us too. Thanks. Welcome to our grooving session, where Tim and I groove on what we learned from our behavioral groups interview, have a free-flowing discussion on some of those topics, and whatever else comes into our better decision-making brains. That's where we're at. We're all about better decision-making. You know, at least I am. And Julie's all about better decision-making to reduce risk. To reduce risk? Yeah. I am at better decision-making to increase my risk. (laughs) Oh, wait, no, no. That's not how that works. Okay, so, All right. what, so what do you want to groove on? Well, I was I, I wanted to talk about you know the study that she was doing in regards to the vaginal insertion and the components of how that applies, some of the insights of how they looked at that and how that applies to business, right? Yeah, yeah. So the the research way of, of how she's doing that and what some of the implications are um, for for businesses, not on vaginal insertion necessarily, but just in general, and then. Um, 
making decisions about food. And again... And the implications into product development. Yeah, and, and some of the research that she was doing on some of the apps and how the, the way that they're going about changing behavior from those apps maybe should be applied to things beyond just food consumption. So let's talk Definitely. about some of those. Definitely. All right. Okay, let's, let's start with, uh, you know, medicine. Like this whole idea that there are really great advances in medicine happening that are not going to get adopted because there's so much friction. Well, because people don't have access, they aren't able to use it properly, they don't have the knowledge of how to use it, they might find that it's creepy or yeah. hard or difficult, yeah. but there's all these friction points. Those are all frictions, absolutely. And so in the corporate world, there are also friction points, right? And Tons. we Tons. have friction points within the organization with our customers, a variety of different things. What was interesting, what I found very interesting, and the part that I think is analogous to, to what we're talking about here. So Julie talked about, you know, they couldn't tape the women actually inserting, you know, the vaginal insert into their vagina. Right, right. right. All, all kinds of trouble there. We're not, you're, they're you're not, not going to go there. Go there. Right. No. So they had to use a, a fill-in and they used the fleshlight component. Yeah, a, a prosthetic, basically. Right. So how many times, I mean, in our world... We just make assumption because that would she would have never learned some of the insights if they wouldn't have done that. Yeah, big ahas came from that. Big ahas. I mean, just thinking about the information of hey, some women don't even really understand what the vagina is, and so they're putting it on the outside versus you know other things. And again, because she was so knowledgeable, that didn't really you know. Well, knowing where the vagina is is a pretty should be common knowledge. And of course, the medical team that's developing it, they're experts as well. They're experts as well. How many times do we have experts creating our products, creating our communications, creating whatever it is that we're doing, and they're experts in that area, and they're trying to develop a product for people who are non-experts or develop communication for people who are non-experts. Right. And and they're tr- I, d- I doubt that they're actually trying to use knowledge or, excuse me, that they're trying to use words that indicate expertise they're trying to use words that that they believe that everyone would understand, but that's not always the case. That's not always the case. I, I can tell you very specifically, we do a lot of work around communicating incentives, and we're working with the incentive team who are bright. They're super, super smart people, but they're also experts in that incentive plan. And when they're conveying it or trying to communicate it, they're telling me like, oh, this is really simple. There's four components and this component is tiered at this part and there's a kicker on this aspect. And all of a sudden I'm sitting there going, wait, it's time out. The people that you're communicating this to are not as expert on this. They haven't spent the, the, They're not even as expert as you are no, and you're getting buried. And I'm getting confused, right? Yeah. And so we have to stop and just take a, a moment and say, where are our where are the people that we're trying to influence? Where are they? And sometimes the friction that we just overlook because we've, we've studied it so much or have so much knowledge about it isn't the case for those other people. Yeah, there's a body of work uh, looking at the uh, the degrees, the, the uh, educational degrees of people in different levels of the organization that I found really interesting because most managers, uh, or there's a high degree of MBAs among managers right. in, in big corporations. And the people that they're often communicating to are are below them in the organization. And a lot of those people either just have undergraduate degrees or haven't completed an undergraduate degree or might even just have a, a, a GED, a high school, a yeah. high school a yeah. diploma. And so, uh, so what is normal and easy and comfortable for the MBA manager communicating to, to the masses... Oh, particularly talking financial components, right? You're yeah. talking about, you know, EBIT, all the other components, you know, these acronyms and various different things. And we don't take into account, they didn't go to two years of graduate school to learn about <laughs> right. the finances of industry. And so we need That's to right. explain and understand, not only explain what those words mean, but the implications of what that is. And so yeah. that that then parlays, I think, into this. So that was really interesting for me. I yeah. thought that was cool. Absolutely. Okay, so let's talk about uh, decision-making around food. Right, so the app that she talked about, right? So the, the, the interesting piece was 
putting calories up on the fast food billboards or, you know, signages around what their food didn't really have that big of an impact. They don't make a damn bit of difference. Right. And particularly in the, in the group that most needs it. Right. So knowledge, again, you brought up the GI Joe fallacy, knowledge in and of itself isn't enough, right? So how do we do, how do we change that? And then Julie was talking about this app that they're working with that was really fascinating because A, it, it took your, Let's, let's order food in advance. And when you order that food, it will then combine your food components and give you the calorie total. For so, the entire order, for everything in the shopping so cart. So I don't have to go, oh, that Big Mac is 500 calories, the fries are 300, and my soda is 170. So what's the math? Uh, you know, 970, it, whatever. Instantly it too be. difficult to figure yeah, out. Yeah, and I'm not going to do that I'm when I'm doing do that. It. But the, when the app does it, it's very simple. It's right there. The other aspect was interesting is then they put it into the stoplight component, right? Um, and But the stoplight it, for her was saying, look, let's take this and customize it. So we can put an algorithm in based on medical components of saying, yeah, you, Tim, at, at 510, right? 510 five, somewhere. Oh, oh height. Yeah, yeah, yeah. Your, your height and your body weight and everything. Almost 511. Yeah, whereas me, I'm 5'8 <laughs> and, you know, all these different things and activity levels probably all in there. Um, but you could get an algorithm that says, oh, well, here is your optimal number of calories per day. Right. And now that's optimal for, for breakfast, lunch, snacks, and dinner. And so you can get that. So all of a sudden you're going, oh, so my lunch I should eat under X amount of calories, but maybe... I can I can push it because it's a special day and I'm going oh it's, I I really want to have those extra fries and no oh, that's still in the yellow that's okay but when I get up into the red I need to be concerned and 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 this traffic light is such a great universal visual tool uh, in in my product development days uh, did testing in um, India Southeast Asia Africa um, Europe uh, you know you know North and South America traffic light is recognized around the whole world well and it's simple. Um, so again, going back to the East model, right? It's easy, right? Yeah. There's that attractiveness of the, I don't know if it's attractive, but. Um, well, it is, right? It, yeah. it certainly can be. Right. Yeah. You can make that visually appealing, right? So it, it's at least noticeable. Yeah. Um, and then timely, right? Certainly. Right? And then I don't the, know if the, we'd make it social. Don't know if you necessarily uh, make it social, no. but from that perspective, that, that works. Yeah. But think about that. You talked about a little bit, you know, what if your financial statement, right? If you had a budget. Right. And and, and there was an app tied to my uh, debit card or my other credit card that I'm using or all of my- All of your credit All cards. of my payment methods so that it tracked- so that everything, so that attract everything, would be really great to have uh, sort of a, a you know so far this week against your budget you're in the green light ah uh, looks like you're closer to the yellow uh, forget it you're you're in the red this week right and and that gives you knowledge but it is also in an easy to to comprehend way I don't have right. to add up. Oh wait, is my budget two thousand this week? Is it you know eight hundred this week? What what is it? You know, too complicated. And keep my math for me. I do want to go back to. Did you say that there's an optimal budget for the number of calories you should have for snacks? Because I think that's <laughs> something that I want to explore. That I want I want to figure out what my optimal budget for snacks is. <laughs> <laughs> well, the Oreos that you brought over today, we have we have definitely exceeded that. <laughs> whatever whatever, whatever the budget ever that budget was, we are yeah. we are. Over that budget, so, so. Th- there's another element in this uh, app that that we both find really interesting, and this is the the temporal construal. This idea of using an online app to make choices about food we're going to be eating 45 minutes later or an hour later when it's actually delivered. But it's the difference between being in a hot state and a cold state, right? So, yes. so that component of saying, "Oh, yeah, well, in an hour or next week or whenever that is." Hey, I would definitely choose the apples instead of the Oreos, you know? But, definitely. But, but now it's here. But that's for next week. <laughs> that's for next week. But that's for, for an today, hour. today, <laughs> the Oreos are very much here, and they're very, they know it's very tempting. And they're within reach, too. And right. the apples are, they're in a different room. So again, making decisions for our future self, yeah. taking what our future self would be in, in line is often more beneficial for our long run than our immediate gratification monkey that kind of takes over. So do you ever make decisions about your future self regarding music? Do you ever say, what I really need to listen to is this, and I'm going to set up some time next week 
to go and listen to the De- the new Depeche Mode record because I don't want to listen to it now. I'm going to listen to it next week. I am an instant gratification monkey on my musical taste. Yeah. So I I will know because I actually I, I get into the component and and I. I've talked about this already. You know, Flora Cash is my new kind of hot band that I really yeah. like. And I just have, you know, indulged myself. I'm probably, it will be hedonic decline very, very quickly, I'm sure. Well, Although the music's rather I, complex. I, I so there's there, some complexity to Flora Cash. So, so there you go. But but there was that immediate kind of hedonic adaptation for them. You got some sugar. And on, I was like, yeah. going, oh, this is great. And I'm like digging into all their, their, their back stuff and various different things and constantly listening to it. Um, but yeah, no, it's the, the instant gratification part, not the future self part going, I should listen to some Mozart next week. <laughs> well, I was just wondering, do you ever, you know? I don't. No, no. okay. How about okay. you? No, uh, uh, I don't know. I, th- I don't think I do. No. I think I'm more of an instant gratification music guy as well. I wonder if there's... Uh, music, Anybody. I wonder, yeah. Music seems to be more of an instant gratification kind of component than a future component, unless you're learning it or some other element that it's going to be playing a part. Do you ever look forward to listening to something? I mean, I remember uh, in in the days when I didn't have music with me all the time, that I only had music on a turntable in my home that I would look forward to getting home and putting on, you know, a particular record. You're old. (laughs) Yes, I am. Yes, I am. That's okay. I remember those days too. Um, Yeah. Yeah, I think there's a difference of having constant access to it. Yeah. There there is. And so now that instant gratification monkey gets uh satisfied a whole lot more. And I mean, you think about that with a number of things, right? Information, um, you know, ability to communicate with people. I don't I don't have to schedule I remember my grandfather would call on Saturday mornings because weekends were cheaper. And that was the okay. one time a week. You're talking about the cost of the phone call. Yeah, there was yeah, an actual long right. distance cost back in the day where right. your local calls were covered with your your you know monthly payment, but long distance calls were over and above, and yeah. and they were cheaper after nine at night or seven. And wow, you're and, really old. Yeah, and then on the weekends, and so my grandfather would call and talk to my dad on the weekends on Saturday morning, and that was an expected component. Um, and you looked forward and to it. Was, yeah, and you'd anticipate that. You know, today it would just be one of those things where, you know, oh, I'm going to call grandpa or I'm going to text grandpa or whatever it is. And so I don't know if you have that anticipation. Well, with that, let's th- I want to thank the listeners for putting up with us for, <laughs> for this crazy old guy discussion. There you go. And if you, and by the way, if you have enjoyed these discussions, especially the Carnegie Mellon series, uh, please give us a, a good rating on the favorite podcatcher that you use. Yeah, and uh, recommend us to a friend, and we would love to hear from you if you have any suggestions or anything else. So with that, thank you. <laughs>